Hello and welcome to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs, writer and mostly sensible habit maker. This episode inspiration came directly to me in the form of Penny Winsor. She's written a book about being a carer and she thought it would be an interesting topic for the podcast. She was absolutely right. This podcast is about very excellent habits and using them to be a better human. That might include improving your sleep, getting better at using inclusive language, developing better tech hygiene. Sometimes I get very specific on this podcast and have episodes around minimalism or being a teacher. And I think it's really important to be diverse and cover the stories of lots of different people. I've never been a carer yet. It may happen at some point, but I used to be a special ed teacher. So I've had more than a usual amount of contact with carers. Currently, there are more than 2.65 million carers in Australia, which means about one in 11 people in Australia are carers. In the UK, it's closer to 8 million. This week's guest, Penny Winsor, has been a carer for both her mother and her autistic son. She's written a book called Tender about the challenges of being a carer. And let me tell you, this book is a doozy. I thought it was really important to shed some light on the lives of carers and also offer some words of comfort for those who are carers through the words of Penny. Hello and welcome. How has your week been? Oh, it's interesting. We're in an interesting time of flux here in London, <laughs> but, um, but things are pretty good. The sun is shining. School is in. Um, we're allowed to see people. So yeah, pretty good. Yeah. I actually just had a, another Londoner I, that I interviewed earlier today and she was saying, oh, it's going to be 19 degrees. It's practically balmy. It's been 28 the last couple of days. I don't know what she's talking about. Oh my gosh. It's been more than that. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's probably hot. Like it's gone from winter. We basically had no in between. It went from winter, which just lasted until May. And suddenly it's now like, 28 degrees and everyone's like get the fans where are the fans where have we left them in the house (laughs) but you're Australian originally yeah I am yeah I'm from Melbourne but I've lived here so this is my hence my slightly funny accent I've been here for 20 years oh wow I always get a funny accent when I talk to people who are British I posh up it's really annoying I start talking like this Uh, (laughs) well I'm hoping that I I well what I assume is going to happen I'm going to get more and more Australian as we talk because it's the more I like as soon as I'm surrounded by Australians my accent comes back so (laughs) all right well let's jump straight into it so you have been a carer twice in your life once for your mother and again and currently for your son what made you decide to write a book about your experiences well it's funny um I think it was as um as time went by with my son, my son was diagnosed when he was three with, um, um, as autistic and he also has learning difficulties. And over the, uh, you know, sort of a few years down the track, I realized that, um, I made quite a few friends with autistic children who have been an incredible, incredible support for me. But what I realized was that it also made me think back to when I was supporting my mom and it was really, really different circumstances. I was a teenager and she was very unwell with depression. And, um, and actually what I found though, was that it really, it really made me think about my experience of caring for her and how the situations, although very different on the surface, had quite a lot of similarities. And also I had really gained so much from supporting my mum that was really helpful now as a parent. And so I started talking to other people about, um, 
about caring. And I found it really frustrating that um, we weren't really having conversations about caring. We're having, there was plenty of talk about, you know, being a, a parent to a disabled child, but, but not much about caring in general. And it was actually on a trip back to Melbourne to visit my family, which I do alone because my son can't travel. Um, and I was having a conversation over wine with a really close old friend of mine who I've known all my life. And her mother was diagnosed with early onset uh, dementia when she was in her early fifties. And it's been a very long time now. I think it's been about 15 years. So she's really at a very late stage now. Um, and we hadn't seen each other for a while. And so we were doing a catch up of how everyone's doing. And we were talking about our days and her dad supports her mum or was at that time supporting her full time. And my friend Lucy was helping. And we realized that actually, despite the fact she's supporting her mum with Alzheimer's and I'm supporting my son um, who's autistic, we had a lot of things in common. And in fact, had so many things in common that we were kind of quite laughing about actually some of the similarities in our experience. And you would not expect it. And that's when in that, during that conversation, that was when I realized, actually, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about caring. It's one of the most human things we'll ever do. Um, We're born, we might fall in love, have children and die. Um, Along the way, we'll do a lot of caring. And there's very few other things that you can say is definitely going to happen in your life. And um, I looked into it, I was doing the research, almost all of us will become a carer at some point in our lives. And so I became a bit frustrated with the idea that we were only talking about caring. Certainly in the UK, the conversation a few years ago was just about elderly care. And it was talked about in a way that only happened for a very short period at the very end of your life. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized actually, you know, particularly for women, caring might take up 20 or 30 years of their life. And that's even aside from supporting your children as they're, as they're being raised. Um, and so I found this big gap and I just wanted to talk to a lot of other carers and the particular problems that came up whilst you were caring and the challenges and why it's not being talked about as well. Well, one of the first chapters of your book talks about carers and their reluctance to be labelled as carers depending on what particular point they are in their life. Um, is that something that comes up a lot in the community of carers that you belong to, that reluctance to, to say that you're a carer? I know so many people who would never use that word, even though that's what they're doing. And I have some thoughts about that. I think part of that actually is because we live in a really ableist society. And this idea that you require care is there's some, as if that is something to be ashamed of. And so some people find that they think it, it reflects badly on the person they support by calling themselves a carer. Um, they think it often a lot of people express it like they they think it eclipses the other relationship that they have with that person so perhaps they think well but I'm not a carer I'm a wife and that involves some care um and you know I'm I'm a parent first I'm a mother first I'm not a carer but it's really interesting I think it's a really really important point um from all the research I've seen as well um that's been done by charities like Carers UK identifying a carer as a carer is a sure way of making sure you get the support that you need, not just um, support from organisations and services, but support from the people around you. And also to also give yourself a little bit of understanding and a bit of a break on the pressure that you put yourself under. Because the fact is that raising a disabled child is not just being a parent. It just, it just isn't. And I know, Carly, you've had experience with lots of disabled children in your career. And, you know, 
as a parent to a disabled child, and I have also a non-disabled child, so I know the difference. <laughs> um, I am, I have to be um, a lawyer. I have to be a therapist, multiple types of therapists. I have to be an educator. I have to be an advocate. Um, I have to be um, a counsellor. I have to be so many different things to my child that I don't have to be to my non-disabled child because it's very complex raising a child with a disability. And it's the same in any relationship. You know, if you're supporting a partner that has a long-term disability, um, you know, they might they might need you to do more than a partner would typically do. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And I don't think it's anything we should be ashamed of, either receiving care from others or giving it. And so I do think it's really, I'm a bit of an advocate for reclaiming the word carer. <laughs> um, a lot of people who are still uncomfortable with it, that's totally fine. But um, I think just to acknowledge that the level of support involved in those kind of relationships is really important. Yeah. And as someone who isn't a carer, if I meet another mum in a playground and she says, you know, I I'm a carer for my disabled child, I really appreciate that information because that helps me create a better environment for that mum and give a bit more understanding when, you know, they might not be as available as the other mums or, you know, they, they might need a little bit of extra support in different ways. And, you know, I, I might have to adjust my expectations of them in a different way because, you know, they're, they're parenting in a different way and it is a different thing. It is different. And also, you know, loads of people, for instance, are supporting a parent and they might not call themselves a carer because they don't live with them, but they also might be on the phone three or four times a day. They might be popping over there, like driving an hour and a half on a Saturday to go and do all of these essential weekly things that they know their parent can't do for themselves anymore. Um, and they might be, you know, laying lots of groundwork for plans in the future as their parent um, needs more and more support. Um, you know, being able to kind of claim that and understand that what you're doing is quite intense can really help even, you know, for instance, if you need more support from your employer or your more support from your friends because of the extra responsibilities you're taking on. And I think the statistic, the most recent statistics I've seen around this is it takes about, it takes about, um, about 30 or 40% of carers take five years to realize that that's what they're doing. And all of those, almost all of those people report that they, if they had identified it earlier, they would have been able to tap into a lot more support, whether that's informal or formal support. Well, it's so interesting. People of kind of our generation are changing the narrative around labels because I remember growing up, it, it there were so anti-labels. You didn't want to get your kid diagnosed with anything because there was stigma attached mm. to it. And I, I just think it's so helpful to put labels on things and say, this is what this is and this is what we need. I really support that kind of narrative around you know labels and that kind of thing on that note one thing that does come up um, a lot reading your book is the protection of the privacy of the people being cared for versus the need for mm. the carers to connect and to talk about their experiences often publicly you know through storytelling and blogs and instagram and all that kind of thing and you know this comes up a lot online even in neurotypical parenting and i i just wonder how you strike a good balance with that and if you know of kind of good examples or poorer examples of how that can go? Well, I'm not going to share poor examples. There's a <laughs> lot I could share, but I don't really want to send people their way. Um, but I would say, for instance, when I was, it's a really difficult one because of course it's extremely personal for it any is, parent yeah. what they share about their child. Um, and I think you just have to always 
keep in mind like um is well first of all would I share this about a non-disabled child I think is a good question to ask yourself and just also why what is the point of sharing this it's interesting I do share more than I know some people would be comfortable sharing who don't share anything for instance like for instance I do share pictures of my children online um but I have very I have very strict lines about what I'll share and what I won't share which other people don't know, but they're very strict to me. Um, for instance, I might talk in general terms about some of the challenges my son experiences, but not in specific ways. Um, and even when I was doing interviews for the book, because I interviewed a number of other carers, there were carers that told me information that they were comfortable sharing, but I decided I wasn't comfortable with putting in the book. Um, because it wasn't actually crucial to the story that they were telling and um, and. So and it was just quite personal. And even if that person had given permission, I kind of decided the line that I wanted to draw under what was necessary and what wasn't. Often we don't need the specific details. What we need is enough understanding to understand a different person's life experience. And so I share things like, you know, what my son might need to be able to participate in an activity or to, you know, like the the things that make it easier for us to go about our lives and for him to join in. Um, and so I might talk about his challenges in what, in a way that would help people understand what he would need if he was to be able to join in with their group of friends or their, you know, that kind of thing. That's really helpful. And I think it's also really important that um, I made the decision to share some stuff about my son's ex experience because I don't think that um, autistic people or people with learning disabilities should be hidden. I don't think my, my son should be hidden away. I think his experience of childhood is just as valid as my daughter's experience. It doesn't mean I need to share everything, but I do, I like him to be visible. He's a great, amazing, interesting, very interesting kid. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so it's fun to share some of his life with other people. And I, I, I don't, I don't gloss over anything. I mean, I do share the challenges as well as the joys but I'm very careful to always share the joys as well because there are loads of those and I know that other parents need to see that they need to see when their child is just being diagnosed that actually our life is going to be different but it's not going to be worse it's going to be more challenging it is harder in this world to be disabled than it is to be non-disabled it really is and a lot of that is stuff that we can change but some of it's not you know for instance you know, some people might experience chronic pain and that's not necessarily something that can be fixed, but, um, but it doesn't mean you can't also live a really, really good life. And I think, so that's why it's ex important to, to talk about both. And so I do share some of our lives with the world. I think that's great because I think that autistic people and disabled people are deeply underrepresented and when they are represented, particularly in, you know, works of fiction or in movies, it's often sensationalized, romanticized, yes. not realistic, that kind of thing. So and just not from a non-disabled, just from a non-disabled perspective. And, um, and this was a big game changer for me. I think, you know, if you are a parent that's, um, that's, got a child that's received a diagnosis that you know nothing about um often the only reference points you have are from a non-disabled point of view and of course if they're from a non-disabled point of view they could probably going to be pretty awful really scary and so it really for me a lot of yeah and well what changed for me is as a parent i think realizing 
realizing this was that if I sought out the stories of disabled people told from the perspective of a disabled person, I would get a much better idea of what's in store for my son. And actually there are incredible, incredible writers out there writing about their experiences of all kinds of disabilities. Um, And really I would encourage any parent of a disabled child to go and seek out those voices because um, our, our reference points are often completely wrong completely wrong um, and we don't realize it and it's okay you don't need to beat yourself up about it you just need to start by educating yourself and I think that's where it's a bit tricky to talk about because I know a lot of um, a lot of parents of disabled children have no experience of it so they come in um, having we've all been raised in a very very ableist society and I don't think we need to layer more guilt on ourselves for not understanding because these stories have not been told. You know, disabled people have been very hidden traditionally. and But it is our duty, really, to seek out those stories now. I think sometimes we forget that 20% of the world is disabled. It is not a tiny minority. It is a very substantial one. It affects people of all different races and classes and backgrounds. It can affect any of us at any time. And it's something that we all have a duty to understand at a deeper level. So can you talk to us a little bit more about ableism? So, you know, what it is and how able-bodied people can avoid participating and participating in it and perpetuating it because I, I have worked with disabled people. I'm still constantly learning. I've still make mistakes. Like I follow a lot of disabled people on Instagram. One thing I actually wanted to, to bring up um, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, the new phrase that we, well, not the new phrase, the preferred phrase now is disabled people rather than person with a disability and that's changed over the last couple of years is that correct yeah I'm not sure when that's changed and also I think a lot of disabled people for a long time have preferred the word disabled um, but it just hasn't been talked about because the narrative is being held by non-disabled people um, often educators actually yep. who decided that that's what they thought was better so I think often you'll get teachers saying no no has a disability with disabilities because that's what they were taught at university if they work with disabled people um, but Everybody has their own personal preferences and not everyone agrees, just like lots of other terms. People have different ways that they prefer to be identified. But I think disabled people is a good default. And then if someone corrects you and says, actually, I prefer this, um, then you can just change it and that's fine. So my default with is to call my son autistic because a lot of autistic people I follow prefer autistic as rather than has autism. And the way they described it to me is, well, my I don't carry my autism around in a bag. <laughs> it is integral to how I experience the world. You can't put your autism just back. Like, no, it's like it's not something you can set aside. Um, so really, and it makes complete sense to me because autism is a way of is a it's a way of processing information and it's a different way of processing information so it affects how my son perceives everything because all the sensory information he takes in is is experienced differently to me so um he can't separate autism from himself in the same way I don't think I can separate woman from myself because I walk around the world as a woman and that's how the world treats me and that's how I experience the world so I see it as similar to something like that um like being tall but of course yeah exactly it's just a thing it's the way he experiences the world there's nothing it's not good or bad it's a neutral thing um so you know if he got to 20 and he said to me no no I don't like that 
um, I have autism, I would be like, oh, okay, that's what, well, that's how we'll refer to it now. That's fine. So he can change his mind if he wants, when he's older, if he's able to communicate that with me. Um, and also if somebody told me that they preferred a different way of being addressed, then that's totally fine by me as well. Um, but yeah, a disabled person is a good default, but, um, but in terms of, um, ableism, it's interesting. I think, you know, everyone would universally agree that that disabled people deserve access to everything non-disabled people do. But um, ableism is much more, it runs much deeper than access. It's about um, really how um, a disabled person will experience the whole world. And one of those things, I mean, this past year is a really, really good example. I don't know if you guys know much about what's happened here in the UK, but early on in the pandemic, a lot of disabled people who live with chronic illnesses, very successfully live with them, but live with them, um, received uh, do not resuscitate um, letters to say, you know, you need to sign these do not resuscitate orders because you won't survive COVID. So we don't think you should take up a ventilator. So sign it now in case you catch it. Oh my gosh. Now that is ableism at work. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, yeah, it's really shocking. It's really shocking. I don't know how many people received those, but a number of people did. Charities, a number of like huge national charities, all up in arms, and <laughs> and a lot of I think they came from specific GP offices in different parts of the country who took it upon themselves. Um, you know, the pandemic is a really good example of what happens when a society doesn't value disabled people, because you know there's a lot of and the media perpetuates this as well. Don't worry, there's this many deaths per day, but don't worry, they're mostly disabled people. You know, like as in, well, they had conditions, yeah. so you shouldn't worry about it. And it's like a, this constant devaluing of disabled people's lives as if somebody who has a chronic lung condition that they've successfully lived with their whole life doesn't have, you know, a partner and children and a really good life and work that they love and all of these things. And even if they don't have some of those things, just still they have a life that they value, that they decide is value. And I think, um, you know, our medical system, our media, a lot of things are really set up in a way that there's this assumption that disabled people don't have valuable lives. Um, and that's what ableism is, really. It's not just, oh, there's not a ramp to get in the building, which, of course, is the, the absolute basic thing, you know, just access to buildings is, it should be the most basic thing. And it's still a problem, obviously, for a lot of places. But it's so much deeper than that. It's about our whole attitude, towards disability and what we think constitutes a valuable life i'm still just in shock that they sent that out know, we had it's, it's, we had it's awful. it was so yeah. horrible like we we had a lot of similar rhetoric here in australia of you know all oh, the people that are dying were sick anyway so who cares and we're like well, well we care like you know we're going to go into mm. lockdown and we're going to try to stay at covid zero to protect everyone because everyone is important so we actually had you know what i believe is quite a good global response in australia mm. we, we did yeah. value lives yeah. over everything else that's not a brag you're sitting there in in england going yeah yeah that was a really good global response well done <laughs> i know you guys had it really I know, we're all jealous don't worry we're all very jealous over here. you had it very rough but also like i'm i'm from victoria so we had it rougher than anyone else in australia yes, we did, did some yeah. hard yards to to pull to pull through our our state in the end there uh can you talk to us a little bit about inspiration porn this comes up a lot uh I, I follow a lot of disabled people on instagram and it comes up a lot the term first came up for me when i saw an interview with uh, stella young who was a disability um, activist in australia she said when she was a teenager that a local newspaper wanted to interview her because she was inspirational and her parents were like 
why specifically why tell us what's so inspiring and the people at the door were just like we we don't know and they were like well can you go away please um I absolutely love that story uh yeah can you can you talk to us a bit about that that comes up because it's come up it came up a little bit in your book yeah, I mean, I think this is really important because, again, it's another side of ableism that we don't necessarily, um, we're not necessarily very conscious of as non-disabled people. Um, and really, Stella Young is just a phenomenon. She's amazing. And everyone should go immediately and watch her TED, TED Talk. You can just, you know, put it's it into TED and just watch it. It's so, it's one of my favourite TED Talks of all time. She's She was such a brilliant woman. Um, so listen to her talk about it <laughs> rather than me, but just to quickly summarize it, it's about how, um, non uh, disabled people are often used as a prop in, um, in, in explaining things to non-disabled for the benefit of non-disabled people. Um, and so that's why she calls it inspiration porn specifically, because it's about turning an, a disabled person into an object, um, to, in order to teach a lesson to a non-disabled person. Um, and one example, and I'm sure lots of people have seen these kinds of things where there might be like a, um, a poster or an image of an athlete who happens to have two artificial limbs and is running. And then underneath it might be like, well, what's your excuse? If this disabled person can do it, then what's your excuse for not doing it? That's inspiration porn. And I love the story she told. The way she explained it was that she was a, um, she was a teacher and she was doing some substitute teaching, I think. And she went into a classroom and she was teaching. It was like teenagers. And the boy put up his hand and she's like, oh, yeah, yep. And he's like, oh, miss, miss, when are you going to give the inspiration speech? And she's like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, you know, the speech. Like, you know, when, you know, people in wheelchairs come into our school, they give us like, you know, an inspirational speech. And she was just like, oh, my God, this child, this kid, this teenager has absolutely no context for a disabled person outside of giving inspiration to non-disabled people. This, like, he had no concept. And she's like, it wasn't his fault. This is the way he's been raised, you know. He was raised only seeing disabled people as an inspiration for him to be a teaching tool, not as his teacher. Um, And I think that, that says a lot about the context in which we view disability. But actually, disability is very ordinary. It's just very ordinary. It can affect all different people in all different ways and they just get on with their lives. Yeah, <laughs> It's a really ordinary thing. And we need to start seeing it as an ordinary thing that just needs reasonable adjustments. Hi, it's Carly. Just popping in to remind you to leave a review for the podcast if you haven't already. Go to the show page, not the episode page, and scroll down to the bottom where it says leave a review. And the best news is that it can count as your good deed that you've done this week. And my heartfelt thank you to those listeners who have left reviews. I check them most days like a total keen bean, and it seriously gives me an amazing boost to keep producing the show whenever I get a review. So thank you very much. On a, on a more personal note, I have been watching um, an Australian show. I'm not sure if you've got access to it or you know about it, but it's called Love on the Spectrum. It's a... Oh, I haven't seen it. It's no. a, I think I've heard about it, but I haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, it's a show on the ABC and it's it's about people on the autism spectrum um, who are dating and there's, you know, people of varying different abilities and, and things and it just shows them going through the process of dating. And I adored this show. I absolutely adored it. I just thought it was wonderful. And the people in it were really 
just I, I learned so many lessons in consent and just a, like I, I, I kind of feel like autistic people uh, get taught things in a way that would actually be very helpful for neurotypical people to be taught things. I feel like there's a lot of stuff that comes out of that. And then I was listening to the autism community after watching that. And some people in the autism community really enjoyed the show and thought it was done quite well. And other people thought it was a bit prop like and that it was kind of a bit voyeuristic and um you know they weren't super keen on it I know you haven't seen the show but it was just a show that I really enjoyed and I wasn't consuming it in a these people are props or inspirational kind of a way they were just people that were experiencing kind of a amplified version of dating and they had this expert mm. that came in and and taught these really great skills in how to keep conversations going which I also just thought would be fantastic for neurotypical people so yeah I, I was a bit conflicted at, uh, after watching this show and enjoying it so much and then and then listening to the community and their thoughts on it which were also conflicting and I was just wondering if you have any thoughts on on that weird scenario uh I mean autistic people are not one homogenous group yeah and um so like like women all don't think the same and like Australians don't all think the same <laughs> yeah. and, and um it's a tricky one I think I'm always really nervous to consume any media about disability unless I know for sure disabled people have been involved in making it. Um, and so if I know that disabled people have been behind it, I'll usually quite happily watch it. Um, but yeah, it's a really tricky one. Um, yeah. Cause I do think that disabled people's stories need to be told. So they, you know, you know, everybody's stories need to be told. So, but I guess it's how it's told and who gets to do the telling. That's the most important thing. Yeah. I really like that tip. I will look into the production of the show and make sure that they had disabled consultants or disabled uh, people involved well, in like an autistic producer or director or something would be really interesting. Yeah. It would just be interesting to find out who like, yeah, what was, what was involved um, because you know, not everything's going to be for everyone no. and that's okay. But I think as long as, um, you know, people, people are telling their own stories, I think that's the most important thing. So what tips do you have for carers who might be struggling? And, you know, I understand that the country they live in and what help is available for them might be a big block, but do you have any advice outside of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, even aside from any official help and services and things, there's a lot we can do, I think, by just recognising what what it is that we do every day, just even recognising it in yourself. Because I, I think sometimes when you go from, oh, I'm, I'm just helping out my mum a little bit to, oh, I'm actually her carer, you can really, um, first of all, give yourself a break like really, really give yourself a break because I think we can be so hard on ourselves when we're supporting another person because, first of all, I've never met a carer who's told me I never want, I don't want to do this. They've Every carer I've ever spoken to has said, um, I want to be the one supporting, you know, my loved one, but I can't do it alone or I need more help or I need more support. That's what it comes down to. So it's, um, it's not, I think we all need to remember it's not um, it's not a bad thing to admit that actually we might not be able to do it perfectly. We might not be doing it very well because actually maybe what's expected of us um, and what that person needs from us is, is a lot. 
And so I think just recognizing what you're doing is really, really important. And find other care friends. You know, just like being a parent, you need people who are going through what you're going through. When I spoke to, I spoke to a lot of different people for the book and particularly people in their 20s and 30s who were doing a lot of uh, high level caring, really needed people their own age who are also doing it. And mostly they have to find that online. And I have to say online communities are such a huge and wonderful thing. And I, we, social media gets so much crap, but honestly, it's been, I think social media has been incredible for disabled people and it's been incredible for carers because, you know, we can, we can become very, very isolated. Um, particularly if you're in an age group that that's, you know, I spoke to people who like all my friends are getting married and they're buying houses and they're traveling and I'm actually, I can't go anywhere because, you know, my dad really, really needs me on hand all the time. Um, and it's a really difficult thing to be going through something very different to your peers. And so finding those communities, even if they are just online and they can't, they might not be able to be in person, um, is really helpful. And, um, one, um, the carer told me that they basically put in the person that they support, their very rare genetic condition, put a hashtag in front of it, found a whole bunch of people around the world who were like <laughs> supporting someone with this condition. I mean, it can be that simple. And by community, I just mean, you know, follow people on Instagram, follow them on Twitter, find people out there. You don't have to belong to a group necessarily that's formal, you, but you can find people whose life looks like yours. And I think that really helps, especially with stuff like, um, um, you know, like we talk a lot about comparison and how it's really bad that we compare it to, but it's actually a very natural human thing to do. It's just that we're not usually doing it on such a wide scale and such an infinite scale that we do, we can now with, with the media that we consume. But if you can, within your Instagram, I have like so many families that look like mine and they're right there in my phone all the time. And I love it. I love having families that look like mine reflected back at me, including, you know, single parent families, like I'm a single parent. Um, and, you know, people that live over the other side of the world to their families, which I also do, people raising disabled children. But also I have made friends with lots of people who have a disabled partner who they give quite a lot of support to um, and, they're, who, and they're also raising children. So even though their partner's the one who's disabled and not their children, what they what they need as a family and what they can do as a family is is kind of similar to to our family and so i just love having them there because that it reminds me that our experience is actually really normal it doesn't look like what my neighbors look like it doesn't look like all the kids in my daughter's um, mainstream school but it's actually still a really normal family experience I think it's also really important for people who are neurotypical and able-bodied to follow these communities on Instagram every time you get the opportunity to. Recently, I stumbled across a hashtag that has just changed my feed and I love it. It's hashtag hot disabled girl summer. And it's just, it's amazing. It's this community of disabled women that are doing these wonderful posts of, you know, like what a hot disabled girl summer looks like. And it's these beautiful bikini shots and like, you know, drinking mimosas and all that kind of stuff. And it's just wonderful. It's completely diversified my feed. I also follow a lot of, um, you know, fat women online as well and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I just like, I, what I'm doing is making sure that my feed looks the least like me as possible. And honestly, Instagram, is becoming a joy by doing this oh it's a, I did the same a few years ago and it is such a joy and I think as well for anyone listening that is really trying to embrace um 
body diversity and um and body positivity it's it is really important to include disabled bodies in that because actually the movement started with disabled bodies disabled bodies are often the most marginalized in um in the world and so to be able to see that diversity in your feed to be able to see i follow some incredible people online who i just you know i love them so much because they have they they live with such pizzazz and such verve and they just they do makeup way better than me and all these things <laughs> um and they just also happen to be disabled um and and that's not what their feeds are all about they're not all about disability they're often about fashion and makeup and lifestyle stuff um and travel um but they're doing it in a disabled body which is really I mean I love to see it because I love to see what's possible I love to see what I can kind of hope for for the future what we can fight for you know because sometimes access stuff does come up um and it's it's really important and it's also very joyful as well on page 180 of your book there is a marvelous question that you ask the readers to ask themselves and that is what's the kindest thing you can do for yourself right now and how did that method become part of your coping strategy well, this is interesting. It comes um, sort of originally from an American um, uh, researcher called Kristen, Dr. Kristen Neff, who um, developed this idea of um, mindful self-compassion. And she also happens to be the parent of an autistic child, but the mindful self-compassion kind of came first and she became a parent second. Um, but what's really interesting is that um, she, um, all her research um, that she did showed that um, when we can be compassionate to ourselves, um, we can um, we can let go of a lot of suffering that we don't need to have. It doesn't make your life sort of instantly easier or instantly better. It doesn't fix problems. But what it does is it stops us layering further suffering. And I think it was a real game changer for me because um, partly because of my experiences with my mum when I was a teenager, um, I have always been really good with self-care. Like, I'm like shit hot at self-care. <laughs> you know, I don't feel guilty for working. I love my work. Um, I will take naps if I need to. I know when I need to get outside and move around and I eat reasonably well. <laughs> um, I'm good at self-care. But the fact is actually it's not enough sometimes. It's not enough. We sometimes treat self-care as the answer to all our problems. But the fact is that we can't solve a lot of problems with a bit of self-care. Um, there's a lot of structural problems that need solving um, and that are not going to be solved by a bit of sleep and a bath. But also when you're supporting someone um, who really, really needs you, you often can't go off and do a bit of self-care to make yourself feel better. You have to be present with them in that moment and there's nothing you can do about it. And it was when I heard Kristen talk about self-compassion as a the next step for self-care that it just totally clicked with me because what I used to do is I used to really beat myself up if I'd had, um, because I'm divorced every other weekend, my kids are with their dad. And so I'd be like, I, if my son ha was having a really hard time and I wasn't coping very well with it, I would beat myself up about it quite significantly. And I'd be like, I should be able to cope today because I had last weekend off. I rested, I slept, I read, I saw a friend, I did all the right things. I should be able to cope this week. Um, and I would make it worse for myself by really criticizing myself. And then that's when I read Kristen's work, it really clicked to me that actually, you know, sometimes 
it's just not enough. <laughs> you know, it's not enough to have rest. Sometimes what you're going to do is just really hard. And she talks about it in the context, particularly of paid carers, you know, like para- paramedics, like frontline workers, nurses, you know, they are dealing with things that, you know, they can't switch off from. You have to get through your whole shift. You have to be very present. You have to be there a hundred percent on, on for that patient. Um, and so she, and she also recommends it for unpaid carers who again, and you could put um, parents in this category as well, particularly, you know, in the really early newborn phase where you're just, you know, feeding all night and, and there's something else you can do. You just have to do it. And so what she recommends then is to then turn to self-compassion. And that's something you can do while you're, actually supporting this other person and you can't go anywhere else um and what's the kindest thing I can do for myself now is such a nice way of putting it because it's how would I treat a friend who was going through this right now how would I talk to a friend not um not how do I talk to myself because often we're really really hard on ourselves in a way that we wouldn't be on somebody that we really care about um And it was a real game changer. So you could ask yourself that question in a very difficult moment. Um, But you could also ask yourself after a really hard day. And the answer to that might be the kindest thing I can do for myself right now is go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) Or it might be the kindest thing I can do is get out and have a break or um, go for a run or eat. You haven't eaten. The kindest thing you can do for yourself right now is to eat or whatever it is. But it's just a really good, slightly non-judgy way of like, what do I do next? How do I cope? As a uh, neurotypical able-bodied person, what can we, like I and most of the people listening to this podcast, do for our carer friends? Um, I think... You know, you said it earlier, you know, if you meet a parent that you know is raising a disabled child, just the fact that you're aware that she might need adjustments made for her to be able to participate is so important. Um, I am so lucky. I have the most incredible group of friends here in London who I've got to know in the last sort of like six or so years. And they really are incredible. They just do things like if my daughter's got a birthday party to go to, they know that it's really hard for me to bring my son to drop off. So they might just say, oh, well, we're going, we'll take her. You know, they don't, um, they don't have, they don't say to me, well, what can I do? They just say, well, are you going to the party? We'll take Agnes if, if you are kind of thing. Um, and so they'll just sort of step in with, you know, they've watched and they've listened to what's difficult for us. And they just sort of step in and say, well, we can do that bit. That's something I can do. Um, that's amazing. Um, they also keep asking me when we say no. And this is really, really important because a lot of carers, no matter who you're supporting, whether it's a parent, either in your home or long distance, or it's, um, or it's a partner who's maybe not, not managing very well at the moment and needs more support from you, um, or a child, it, you'll often have to turn things down because also um, you might go through phases where they, that person needs much more support from you and phases where they need a bit less and you just need people to keep turning up to you and to keep asking and to keep inviting and to not be offended when you turn them down and you say no um and so being aware of how you can make the whatever it is that you're doing more accessible for the person that they support as well as for them um and just ask the questions and don't be afraid to ask questions as well And that was my chat with Penny. If you'd like to read her book, it's called Tender, and it's a very good, deep, feely read. I can highly recommend it. I'm not going to share any tips from me because that would be weird, but I did want to share an excerpt from the book. 
I know that Agnes is already affected by her brother in the most positive ways. I can hear it in her voice as she explains autism to new friends in the park, in the way she talks openly about disability with her incredulity at any perceived infringements on her brother's rights of access. She does not passively accept she must come second, but understands in ways beyond her years that equal does not mean the same. Rather, equal means each getting what we need, and we are all equal in our house. I remember years ago, I was in my mid-twenties and a friend of mine asked me for some advice for a friend of hers. She'd recently fallen pregnant with her third child and had discovered in an early scan that the child had Down syndrome. Her main concern was for her two older children. What would happen to them? How would they cope? Would she have time and energy to be the mother they needed her to be? She asked my friend to ask me what I thought because she knew I worked as a special needs teacher. I hadn't actually thought about it until that point, but when I thought of the sisters and brothers of the children I taught, I realized what incredible people they all were. They're just patient and calm and helpful and joyful. They were often my students' favorite people, and my students' faces would light up when they realized that their brother or sister were hopping out of the car when they were getting picked up. I don't actually have a point with that story, by the way. I just know that siblings of disabled kids often get overlooked and are forced into resilience and are often really pretty bloody cool about it. I just wanted to let you know I see you. And when I meet a particularly amazing person as an adult and I find out they have a disabled sibling, I'm very rarely surprised. That was a big old episode, wasn't it? I hope this episode serves as a reminder of how important it is for us to step outside of our own lives and have a look at what's happening to those around us. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs. You can find me on Instagram at Very Excellent Habits. You can also email me contact at carlyjacobs.com. You can also record a question for me to answer on the show at speakpipe.com forward slash very excellent habits. Also, if you love the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. For $5 a month US or $7 a month Australian, you can get access to all of my extras, workbooks, resource lists, worksheets, and all of that fancy stuff. You can get the full back catalog plus all the new stuff at patreon.com forward slash very excellent habits. And one more thing, please leave a rating and a review. It's the best way to help other people find the podcast. Until next time, remember, little habits, big life.